Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be together to open up the Word of God. God has not left us without a plan for our lives. He's revealed Himself through the written Word of God, and that is something that is central here at Grace Bible Church. You'll hear the Word being read. You'll hear often in our music the Word being sung, and now you're about to hear it preached. And I'm sorry if you came for a 15-minute sermonette. You're not going to get that. Or you might get three or four of them. (laughs) We devote the lion's share of our worship service to the proclamation of the Word of God. And again, it's not my opinions or what I, who I think you should vote for, but it's declaring what God has revealed to us from His Word. Many think that we live in good times today. U.S. government says jobs are, you know, there's new jobs and the, the unemployment rate's at an all-time low, not an all-time low, but the lowest in 10 years. The economy's inching up, although they always revise the GDP. Uh, the gross domestic product. There's plenty of food, and uh, all of us live in nice houses, some of you in very large houses. Uh, Most of us have good health, and we think, well, Obamacare saved the day, and and things are just going so well for us here in America. And, and, And the reality is, is that what we see is a culture of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Well, Paul paints a different picture in our text today. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says that we live in difficult times. We live in perilous times. We, we live in times that are they're not described as, as all of these good times. And actually, in reality, as we go through this description, and as I read the text, and I want you to just think about what do you see around you? When you turn on CNN, when you turn on Fox News, when you go down into a public place, what types of things do you see around you? And I think you will agree that Paul's description is an accurate one. Now, as we approach chapter 3, the big picture of chapter 3, what Paul is setting before us is a couple of examples. He's setting before us, and by the way, the power of example is important and something we shouldn't neglect. Uh, Jesus himself had the power of the spoken word, but also the power of example of how he lived his life. Uh, Little boys grow up and want to be like their sports heroes, and so they work really hard. Baseball, football, whatever the sport might be. Girls, their favorite singer, they're they're singing the song privately in the bathroom into the hairbrush, pretending to be like like their their favorite singer. And and so the power of example is there. Well, Christ is the par excellence example that we are to follow. But in chapter 3, what Paul does is he gives us a couple of pictures. He gives us some pictures of godless, wicked men and false teachers. And he says, avoid those. But then what Paul does later in the chapter, which we'll see in a week or two, is, is in verse 10, now you followed my teaching conduct purpose, faith, patience, love, and perseverance, what he does is he sits him, sets himself up as a godly example to follow. So let's read the text. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, which will be our text for today. 2 Timothy chapter 3, reading from the New American Standard Version. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, 
without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we reflect on the verses that we have just read, and and as we reflect on the situation in our world, a world that lacks peace, a war, a world that is constantly at war, various countries with other countries, militant groups that have hatred and hostility as their, their purpose and their end goal. Lord, as we see sexual perversion and all manner of seeking after pleasure around us, surely, Lord, our spirits testify to the truth of the passage before us. And in, in light of your holiness, in light of your standard and your requirement, these indeed are difficult times. There is so much perversion and sin around us. Lord, give us understanding how we're to deal with these things, how we're to understand these things. Lord, also send your spirit to search our hearts. For Lord, if there's any hints of hypocrisy and loving pleasure and conceit and pride and all of these things. And and no doubt some of these things we will find in each of our hearts that we would hate it, forsake it, mortify it. Lord, that you would help us to renew our minds. So have your way this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul's great concern in 2 Timothy, as the last letter that he wrote, is that Timothy would cherish the gospel, that he would hold tightly to the gospel, that he would hand it on to faithful men who would then pass it on to others and so forth down through the generations. He reminded them not to wrangle over words or to get in these word battles, these conflicts, uh, but, but rather to study to show yourself approved unto God as a workman who need not be ashamed. Paul gives that illustration, and last time we saw in verse 20, uh, of the various vessels in the house of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor, and he zooms in, as it were, on one of the vessels. If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Paul goes on to explain what the Lord's bondservant should look like. He's one that's not wrangling over words. He's one that refuses foolish and moronic, literally, speculations, knowing that they will only produce quarrels. But by contrast, the Lord's bondservant is patient when wronged, kind to all gentleness, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, that if God should be pleased to grant them the gift of repentance. And so that's really the section, that's, that's really where we're at to bring us to chapter 3. And, and there's two closely related sections, as I referenced earlier, in verses 1 to 9. Verses 1 to 5 are the sinful traits of really any pagan culture that you can look at today, and which makes the days difficult And even though verses 1 to 5 actually can apply and often apply to false teachers, verses 6 to 9, it is absolutely clear that he's focusing on the false teachers that were there in Ephesus, and the application goes for any false teachers anywhere. 
We know that Paul even warned when he told the Ephesians elders after spending three years with them in Acts 20, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Even later in the next chapter, we're going to see in verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their desires. Boy, do we see that today. But the good news is, is that we know Matthew 16 is still true. Jesus Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So first of all, verse 1 today, we live in difficult days. And notice he says, realize this, that the last days, in the last days, difficult times will come. Well, first of all, the but connects it to the previous section, uh, possibly the recovery of some of these that that have been granted repentance here, but it is connected to the end of chapter 2. But notice Paul speaks of the last days in the future tense. So is he talking about in the year, you know, in our century? Is he talking about two centuries ago? Is he talking about what, when's he talking about the last days? Well, it's going to be helpful to look at the grammar and to try to understand exactly what Paul means here. This future is something that Timothy was then experiencing. So even though he uses the future tense, that that in the last days, difficult times will come, it's something that, that Timothy was already experiencing at that time. In fact, this passage is applied to Timothy, as you can see, both imperatives, realize or know this in verse 1, and verse 5, their bookends, avoid such men of these, are present imperatives, second person singular directed to Timothy, by implication to all that would follow. And so this is directed directly towards Timothy, second person singular, right to him as he gives these commands. Realize this, young Timothy, that in the last days, difficult times will come. The idea of realize, it's the word no, gnosko, an, an intelligent comprehension of something that has been presented. Now let's talk about these last days. Last, the Greek word eschatos, you know, we get eschatology from eschatos and logos. The last word is the study of the last days, is the study of the end times. Uh, this phrase is used by several New Testament writers, and, and sometimes it does speak of the period immediately preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ. But most of the time, it's speaking of a new error that has come, an error that those in the Old Testament were looking forward to, the time of Messiah. And now that Messiah has come, we are living in the last days. The church itself has been living in the last days. Listen to John Stott. The New Testament author saw the new age, the one promised in the Old Testament, that it arrived with Jesus Christ. And therefore, with his coming, the old age begun to pass away, and the last days have dawned upon us. Think of Peter's sermon in Acts 2. One of the greatest sermons ever preached, what does he say? He quotes Joel about the last days, and he applies it to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit there in the first century. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 uh, speaking of in former portions and in former ways, God has spoken through the prophets and all this. But in these 
what? Last days. He's spoken to us in His Son, the final revelation of God. So here it does not point to some future period of days, but rather Paul is reminding Timothy and the church in Ephesus that they are living in the last days. And if that is true, we are living in the last days as well. These are realities in the world while waiting for the final act of redemption, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Maranatha, come quickly. Why, Lord? Because we see these things around us and we long to go home to be with Him. In 1 John, John as well, children, he uses the phrase a little differently. It is the last hour, he says. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, he goes on to say that many Antichrists have come into the world. So, Brothers, these last days will be difficult times. Listen to John Calvin. He observes, he means that there will not be, even under the gospel, a state of perfection, that all the vices have banished, virtues of every kind flourishing, and that therefore the pastors of the Christian church will have quite as much to do with the wicked and ungodly men as the prophets and godly priests had in the ancient times. What's Calvin saying? There's not going to be some... Some, some age of perfection, some where all of these things are so far weakened and we see virtues flourishing. No, these are, this is just something to be expected in every generation until the Lord comes. Now, let's look at the word difficult. In the last days, difficult times will come. The word uh, means hard to bear. It, it's translated perilous. So it's difficult. Difficult almost isn't strong enough for me, but it's perilous times. And of course, it's not so much the times as it is the people, because he goes on to what? Describe all of these people. John Calvin, again, he says, we should note that the hardness or danger of this time is in Paul's view to be not war, not famine, not diseases, or any other calamities or ills that befall the body, but the wicked, depraved ways of men. Now, when he says times, difficult times, it's not chronos, where we get the chronological time, but it's the other word that's commonly used, kairos, that means it refers to seasons or eras. And so this era of the last days is the era in which Jesus Christ has come on the scene and he's now gone to glory. Okay, well, verses 2 to 4, what are the characteristics of this pagan culture? Notice what heads the list. Would you look at that? For men will be lovers of self. Do you see that today? Do you see that? No. <laughs> no. Of course not. Not today. No. Uh, you know, lovers of self. <clears throat> and, and, and he said, but notice he says, for, this is why they're going to be difficult. They are lovers of self. Paul is describing what is true of the apostolic age and onwards. Paul has these other lists where he lists all these vices, uh, the deeds of the flesh, Galatians 5, uh, Colossians 3, there's a list of the deeds of the flesh there, Romans 1, we just read it, that whole chapter, uh, and then right at the end, verses 29 and 31, he fires out um, those things, a very similar list. Now the list Paul has here, he lists 18 vices in verses 2 to 4. Um, if you count verse 5, it would be 19, holding to a form of godliness, but denying 
its power. Some of these traits are very common in false teachers. They can be hard to see. That's what makes false teachers so dangerous, because they can be hard to see some of these manifestations within them. Remember, Jesus said, Beware of the false prophets who will come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Of the 18 words Paul uses here, grammatically, there's five that only occur in this list in the New Testament. There's another five that only occur one other time in the New Testament, and that's either in Romans chapter 1 that we read or the pastoral epistles. So he's not, he's not picking super common words. He's picking some pretty complex, unfamiliar words. And then, as I mentioned uh, last night, there's a, a chiastic structure to this, which sort of goes A, B, C, D, C, B, A. And so in the both A's, you've got the idea of love, lovers of self, lovers of pleasure. In the next list, you have, and there's three terms of each, they have to do with pride and arrogance towards others. The next eight in column C are are eight alpha primitive words that are listed, and in the middle of that is one particular word, diaboloi, which I'll get to, that says translated slanderous or malicious gossips. It's also translated the devil often in the New Testament. So it's just an interesting stylistic type of thing, whether Paul intended to do that. That's how it is phrased. There's a lot of passages in Scripture that are like that. It's fascinating when you're studying a passage to see that. Now let's look at this list in detail, brethren. Lovers of themselves, the first, instead of loving others. And this is really the key to the rest of the list, isn't it? The moral corruption that naturally flows from a misdirected love, from loving self rather than loving others, from loving self rather than loving God. It's a misdirected love that will lead to other sins. In fact, there's really nothing new under the sun. Remember at the end of Judges, the book of Judges, it says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was the era then. Narcissism, a love of self, is a huge problem in our culture today. Of course, secular psychology and its unbiblical assertions have snuck, as it were, and crept into the church the last hundred or two years, fueled by 19th century humanism, that, that the idea that it's all about me, this positive self-image, this self-esteem, self-worth, and, and all of that, is crept into the church. John MacArthur observes, he, he thinks, or he, he referenced evolutionary thought. If you really believe in evolution, then you're just a product of impersonal chance. God has ruled out, then elevating self is perfectly acceptable. It makes sense. This, with all the humanism, all of that stuff that was coming in in the last couple hundred years. The reality is, brethren, that everybody worships something. What is it that you worship today? What is it that consumes your time? What is it that you set your focus upon? Natural, sinful, corrupt man focuses on one person. It's himself or herself. John Calvin says so blindly, do we all rush in the direction of self-love that everyone thinks he has a good reason for exalting himself? The remedy, he says, the remedy, he says, is to pluck up the roots of that noxious pest of self-love. 
You see, what he's saying is that just as as the sins in our life are sometimes pictured as weeds, and that when you see self-love, pull it up by the root. It's not going to do enough to trim it at the surface of the ground, because if the roots are still there, what's going to happen? It continues to grow back. Pull it up at the root. When you choose to make self the central focus of your life, Instead of God, everything else is out of whack. And that's exactly what we see today. This particular word, Paul uses several compound words in this section, but phileo, which is the common word for love, brotherly love, affection, a cherished affection, it's phileo, atos, which is a pronoun for himself. It's a lover with great affection for oneself. He loves himself. Hedgehogs uh, exhibit this, along with uh, the remaining, the the ones, lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant. Uh, A hedgehog will will roll themselves up into a ball so that they enjoy the warmth of their own fur. And then on the outside are the prickly pines that that, 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 that go out to anyone who would seek to disturb them. We know that Christ says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't it interesting how he says love your neighbor as yourself because he knows that our propensity is to love ourselves. How much time do you spend in front of the mirror? You want to make yourself look nice. Maybe shave your beard. Uh, you know, Put on a little makeup or something like that or a little lotion or shampoo or wash your face or these kinds of things. We love ourselves. And so we're to love God first and our neighbor as ourselves. Secondly, lovers of money. Lovers of money is a second characteristic rather than focusing on the greater things. In Luke 16, verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Turn back a couple pages with me to 1 Timothy 6. In verse 6, godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by what? Contentment. Verse 8, for if we have food and covering, these things we shall be content. But notice verses 9 and 10, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You see, he's not saying having money is sinful here. What he's saying is that the love of money, the pursuit of money, the desire to be rich, plunge men into destruction. And, and literally, the, the imagery here is, is, is like they're being pierced and being put on a spit as they, um, as they pierce themselves with many griefs. The love of money. You know, when you have false teachers that their whole purpose is to get you to give money, the TBN crowd, the, the God TV channels and all of that, the whole purpose is to get money, get this little hanky that, you know, it'll bring healing to little Johnny, you know, who's got cancer. Uh, do this, do this, you know, and then when you have people like Creflo Dollar, which is an absolute heretic, I've just said it, 
okay? And him and his buddies are having everybody bring money up, and the whole front's just covered with dollar bills, and they're just scooting along, going, money, 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 and they're literally going back and forth that that's the love of money. Prosperity seekers, they pursue and they cherish money, but even bringing it more closer to home. If, if you work all kinds of overtime for the purpose of getting rich that you might get rich. This describes you. You're a lover of money. Thinking about money all the time. By the way, those who are poor can often be lovers of money, right? Because they're thinking about it. They, they desire to be rich. They want to hit it big and, and all of these types of things. It's one thing to, to have your needs met and have a good desire for that. But the reality is, is that, well, just look at the lotteries. Just look at this, you know, the, all, all this, what, the, what do they call it? Powerball or something? I don't know why it's called a ball, but it, whatever. But all these lottery tickets, it's a tax on the poor because they want to hit it big. <clears throat> so they'll actually take their money for their, their kids uh, to, to, to buy food and buy tickets. You know, on the GoFundMe sites, there's actually people with GoFundMe pages because I couldn't help it. I spent all of my money on the lotto, and now I need, need to have help so I can feed my babies. Unbelievable. Lovers of money. But then look what's next. Third, boastful. Lifting oneself up in their own eyes, and that's the result of self-love. If you love yourself, you're going to boast about yourself, Right? James in 4.16 says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Boasters brag about themselves, their accomplishments. They exaggerate their abilities and their value. In Psalm 52, we read it earlier, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty men? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, a worker of deceit. Verse 5, but God will break you down forever. And then the fourth term, arrogant, haughty, looking down on others. Those who are boastful are also arrogant. Um, William Barclay says, man can be arrogant in his heart and appear outwardly humble. You see, I can't see if you're arrogant because it's something that stays in the recesses of your heart. But it is in his heart that he has contempt for others and he nourishes the all-consuming and prevailing pride. Contempt for others, loving self, secretly desiring to exalt self. Revilers, blasphemers, literally, abusive, rather than being compassionate. Next, disobedient to parents. Instead of honoring mother and father, disobedience, there's a twisting of authority structure and, 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 and those that despise authority. Why do you think the family is so weakened in our culture? Child-centered homes where the parents run around with whatever little Johnny or poor Johnny, uh, whatever a little boy wants, you know. It's like, you know, I want this, I want that, you know. And the, the parents, just their whole, their whole purpose in life becomes making the two-year-old or the three-year-old happy. Everything gets centered all around that rather than, wait a minute, I'm the parent. I know what you need. <laughs> and you don't need candy for the fourth time today. Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, 
wicked men, as our brother Chris read from Romans 1, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Ungrateful men. And so these last five, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedience to parents, all that have to do with relationships, don't they? And then he goes on, unholy. The idea is heartless, vile, profane, unloving, without natural affection. It's a negative form of the adjective that's listed here. And it commonly is used of family and social and patriotic love. And so a natural affection. If you have a child, there's a natural affection between a mother and its child, right? And so this is an unnatural affection, unloving to those where there should be affection. Of course, you can flip on any TV station and you see that in the news. Irreconcilable, those that will not forgive because they hate mercy. They will not forgive. They exact every single wrong that's against them. They keep track of everything. They're irreconcilable. They're unyielding. They're covenant breakers. They're the ones that are so quick to run down and file for divorce and break the covenant that they have made. Irreconcilable. Feuds that never end. Paul writes in Ephesians, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And then this central term, malicious gossips. As I said, the word's often translated as the devil. It's slanderer. It's those who slander like the devil. The list has a bit of a turning point here. Five of the alpha primitive words Uh, that speak of the decay of family relationships. And the next three are more broad, without self-control. No moral restraint whatsoever. A slave to their passions and a slave to their lust. It goes on and talks about that they're brutal. They're like untamed beast. The beast of the field. Savage. Haters of good. We heard the prophet, God speak through the prophet in Isaiah 5. Woe to those that call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Boy, do we see that today? What is good is demonized. What is evil is lifted up and held up in high regard. Haters of good. Treacherous. Treacherous. Those who can't be trusted. It comes natural from a person who loves money. Think of, and not only in the movies and the old Alfred Hitchcock and Twilight Zones, but I mean, in real life, how much violence and how much murder takes place over money? The gangster on the street, it's to get drugs or to get money to get drugs or whatever the situation is. You know, those old Alfred Hitchcocks, you know, the the wife plots to poison the husband to get the life insurance money. It's all money-driven, you know, even those old shows, a lot of them are. That makes them treacherous. They're reckless, which means rash. And then, of course, notice the, the phrase or the word here, conceited. Conceited. Puffed up in smoke is the imagery that the Greek word, I think it's tofu, it means that it's like, it's a puff of smoke. You puff yourself up, poof, you know, like that, to make yourself look big. 
God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. John Lennon, uh, one of the Beatles, boastly, or arrogantly boasted once, Christianity will go. It will vanish and, vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular now than Jesus. You believe that? That statement by John Lennon. His boast was a puff of smoke. Yeah, Ed Sullivan show, whatever it was, 15 times, and all of that, selling all these gold platinum albums. Yeah, they were popular for a season. And maybe some of you still like them, but that's, that's the mindset. That it's all about us. I'm conceited. And then this phrase, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's interesting. He uses all these single word, one of them's two words, but a, a very short descriptive terms here. And then here, it's really expanded, isn't it? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Americans spend hundreds of billions of dollars on seeking pleasure. Self-absorbed, self-gratifying, pursuing pleasure at all costs. Jesus says, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Blinded by conceit, this blindness has a moral and a spiritual cause. Its root is in the heart and in the will for these people are utterly selfish, self-loving, pursuing pleasure. <clears throat> Not only does one find these people outside of the church, but the reality is, brethren, is that they have infiltrated the church, haven't they? And if we're careful and we examine ourselves, we'll see some of these things in our own hearts. Some of these things that might be there in a in a, um, a weakened form, but nonetheless are hiding in the corners of our heart how we need to cry out with the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. The present day manifestations of this list and this pagan culture is a fascination with anything sexually immoral. I read in my regular reading today the many perversions listed in Leviticus 18 and 19. I won't even go into those in detail. But there's a fascination for anything that is sexually immoral outside of what God has designed to be where the, the sex is something that is good and something blessed of God within the marriage covenant but anything outside of that is a perversion of God's design. And you see it all over the place. Men with men, as we read in our passage. Women with women, as we read in Romans 1 in our scripture, scripture reading. God finally gives them over wholeheartedly to think that these things are good and right. And so every gay pride event that you see, it grows bigger and larger and larger with more and more participants. Even if they do not practice that lifestyle, they give wholeheartedly approval to those that do. We see it in our culture. An increased drug use as those pursue pleasure at all costs. We see people that are so consumed with themselves self-centeredness rather than being other-centered. Isn't that one of the things we have to train our children? We have to break them to teach them to be other-centered rather than so self-centered. 
course, we are the selfie generation, aren't we? It's all about me. This whole idea of parents losing respect of their children and their children um, ruling the home, a child-centered home, a a refusal to submit to authority in general. You see that in the church. I'm just a renegade. I'm not going to join a certain church. I just go here, go there, do a little bit of this and that. A disregard for others, a disregard for the dignity of human life with the millions that are slaughtered in abortion mills, the disregard for human life and the trafficking of young boys and girls in the human trafficking scene. What? For the gain of money, right? Brethren, verse 5. These are the ones that hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Is your walk in godliness without substance? This idea of holding to a form of godliness, it, it speaks of an outward shape without reality. It speaks of the outward shell but there's nothing there on the inside. There's nothing that's genuine. And in fact, he uses the present participle here, holding to a form. This is something that these people, it connects it with verses 2 to 4, these are the ones that are holding to this outward form. These men go through all the correct movements to maintain the external show, men and women, but it's all show. And he says here, an external form of godliness, although they have denied its power. It it can be translated as piety. Godliness is mentioned many times in the pastoral epistles. It's, It's a true desire to please God the way he is designed. True religion or true Christianity, you could think of it that way. But these have denied its power. That is, they've refused the very power of God. And and turn back to chapter 1 with me of this letter. In verses 7 and 8, Paul's used this word, uh, dunamis, where we get dynamite, this power. Verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but one of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in the suffering for the gospel according to the what? The power of God. God has given us a spirit of power, and we're to rely on the power of God, but these have a form of godliness, and they deny its power. The power of the Holy Spirit to transform and to renew our minds and to make us into new creatures. The power of God that's offered in the gospel. Spurgeon said, those who have professed Christ are accustomed to come together at certain times for worship in their assemblies. They join in common prayer, common praise, They listen to the testimony of God by his servants who's called to preach, and alas, they have no value because it is all without power. Paul is not talking about some distant future. He tells Timothy, present tense, directed to him, our second imperative, avoid such men as these. These men that are around you, these men that some may have even crept into the church, avoid such men as as these. Well, very quickly, just a couple of questions in our conclusion application as we wrap up. Is your delight in Christ and in Christ alone? 
Uh, To put it another way, rather than all the pleasure and all the self-love and all of that, is Jesus enough to give you peace and joy? Didn't he say, I came to give them life and and an abundant life? Jesus is enough. Is your Christian walk genuine or is it does it hold to the form of godliness? It's but it's empty on the inside. You see, we need to be careful of hypocrisy. Thomas Brooks, a wonderful Puritan, says the hypocrite is a cloud without rain, a blossoming tree without fruit, a star without light, a shell without a kernel. Long for the Holy Spirit's transformation in your life and character to the degree that you see in the corners of your heart, perhaps some of these these sins and vices that have been listed, look to God, look to Christ, beg for spiritual renewal. Beware that you don't fall into these sins. And, And brethren, an obvious application is we live in this godless culture, this pagan culture, these perilous times. And so what should we do? Go move to the mountains in our own little holy huddle? Or should we take the gospel to them? Because they need the gospel. A lost and dying world, and we have the very words of life that can deliver people from these vices. And so the call to share the gospel is upon all of us. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, as Paul says. And if you're not a Christian and you're here today... And there's some of you that I see out there that I do not know. Maybe you've got a form of godliness, but you've denied its power. Do you lack peace with God? Come to Jesus Christ. Admit your sinfulness before a holy God and stop trying to put on the external show when you know that you're not pleasing God with your life. Admit your sinfulness and come to Him begging that He would cleanse you from all of your sins. In the last day, you will stand before this Jesus and answer for your sins. Cry out and ask for deliverance even now that He would cleanse you by that precious blood of which we sung and of which we heard earlier. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this very clear, descriptive um, description of of our godless culture. Help us to be vessels fit for the master's use, to take the gospel to this lost and dying world. Help us to not be shocked when we see all manner of wickedness and perversion, but rather that we would hold out the solution of the gospel to them. In Jesus' name, amen.